We've been studying holiness in different areas of our life. Uh, in First Peter, Peter has laid out the grand command, be holy, and so we've been looking at what that actually looks like in our life. You know, we use that word a lot in church, be holy, and God is holy, and we should be holy as God is holy, but Peter's really been helpful in fleshing that out for us uh, in First Peter. It's been surprising for many of us how much is present in the few words of First Peter, and it may be surprising how applicable the words are to us today. They were written 2,000 years ago, but they're still just as fresh and alive as they were when they were written. Uh, we have decided to take a quick break from First Peter, because even though this inspired letter from God to us uh, was written to a specific audience and we benefit from studying it, we have been blessed beyond measure by having the whole counsel of the Word of God, not only First Peter, and so the unspeakable blessing of having this whole counsel of God, the completed canon, we thought, let's just take a break from First Peter for just a week or two, a few weeks, and, and really find out more about holiness in other stations of life. So we've set apart these lessons from First Peter so that we're clear that they're not there, but these are crucial for us to understand and obey because they're part of God's Word, His message for us, His people. Also, one station of life that Peter does not cover is children, raising them and caring for children. So in our short break, we really thought we needed to address this station of life with, uh, regarding children, caring for children, glorifying God by living a holy life that includes obeying Him with children, taking care of children. Now, notice that I have not yet to this point said parenting because this will cover more than just parenting. It will, it will cover um, a lot of our tasks as parents, but that's not the extent of it. And so even, again, as we've said from week to week, this is going to be applicable to all of us, not just for parents. But here's the key idea for us to keep in mind this week and, Lord willing, next week, the next couple of weeks here. This is the key idea that's going to just stand supreme over, over everything that we're talking about, and that is that children are precious to God. And not only are children precious to God, they should therefore then also be precious to us. So children hold a special place in the heart of our Lord. Now, all of us belong to the Lord. He made all of us. We don't stop being precious to Him when we're no longer children. But they hold a special, even more special place in His heart. So whether you have children or not, God says all of us have some part in caring for and protecting children. As for children's place in the Lord's heart, by way of introduction, Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, that means listen, pay attention, notice this, children are a heritage from the Lord. And that word heritage is an inheritance. They belong to the Lord. And He gives them to us for a time. The fruit of the womb, a reward, not an inconvenience or troublemakers or problem people, <laughs> they are a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So children belong to the Lord. They, they are His. And if He brings one or more into your care, it is a reward. It's a gift from God. It's a blessing. They're precious to Him, and so He gives precious gifts to us in the form of children. We know that every good and every perfect gift comes from our Father, God, right? 
That's how precious children are to God. He gives us good and precious gifts from Him in, the, in the, the people, the little people of children. But regarding how all of us have a part in the lives of our children and, and the children around us, not just our own, if you would, turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 14. Uh, in Numbers 14, the people of Israel are going to try to use children as an excuse not to obey God, and God will become angry with them for that. You remember when we come up to Numbers 14, God has told the people of Israel, take the promised land. He's brought them out of Egypt. He has redeemed them, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and He's brought them right to the border of the land, and He says, you're going to go in and take this land. And they had taken some spies and sent them into the land, and the spies had come back, and they said, yes, the land is as good as God says it is. It's an amazing land. But then they also said, but you're never going to see any of it because we're all going to die. <laughs> right? They said the people are so powerful and so strong. They're tall. They're huge. We're like grasshoppers to them. The cities are fortified, and they're large, and they're strong, and there's just no way that we're all going to be able to get in there. So Numbers 14, verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled and said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They're saying, did God just want to kill us? Why didn't He just kill us in Egypt? Why did He bring us all this way? Here's what their key, their key argument is. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? God's going to just kill our kids. I mean, you know, even if, even if we, some of us make it through, the little ones aren't going to survive. He's just, you know, God's killing children here, basically. That's what they're accusing God with. The women and children are going to be killed. So they start to organize a, a return trip back to Egypt. They, we need to elect a new leader and let's head back. And Joshua and Caleb tell them, look, don't fear the people. Fear the Lord, right? Obey the Lord. Don't reject him. Don't rebel against him. Just trust him and obey him. But they decided they were going to send, they were just going to stone those two men, say, I don't want to hear what you have to say. We're heading back. And then the glory of the Lord comes and just stops everybody. And everybody just stops in their tracks. They're like, uh-oh, now God is here and God's going to speak. God begins to spell out his anger on his own people for trying to use the children as an excuse not to obey him. He says that you have rebelled, that, that he, he's going to now enact some punishment to them. He's not going to destroy all of his people, but he does say that not one man over 20 years old it will be allowed to enter the promised land. Only Josh, Joshua and Caleb will be allowed in. Anybody else at this point in time who is 20 years old and above is going to die in the wilderness. Look at verse 31. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey... I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children will be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. You, know, you tried to protect your children by disobeying God when obeying the Lord would have protected them, right? The Lord would have kept them safe. They're in His hands. So now the Lord is going to demonstrate that care by raising them in the wilderness to inherit the land that the adults didn't want to inherit for fear of what would happen to their children. And God didn't punish the children here. The, the children are not being punished for the sins of the fathers. They're not being killed with the fathers. But the children are suffering for the faithlessness 
of the people all around him. Notice it wasn't just the fathers. It was the whole congregation who complained. And so the sins of the whole generation before them came upon the children after them, not just the fathers, but God cared for the children. There were consequences for the sins, but God wasn't punishing them. He fed them with the manna every day, as he, well, six days a week as he had previously. He, he watered, they gave them the water they needed. He even ensured that their clothing and their sandals wouldn't wear out as they traveled for 40 years in the wilderness. And then he took the time to review his law specifically for them in Deuteronomy. The, the second giving of the law, he gave it to them again because they were precious to him. They were precious to God, and he cares for them because they belong to him. But all of us can influence children all around us, not just our own, but the children that, that run around after the service and, and play tag and all the fun things that they do. We can influence them by our faithfulness or our faithlessness. The way we treat them, the way that we ignore them, the decisions that we make even before God. So to bring the point home even more that children really do belong to the Lord, that they are really His, as if this hasn't been enough, He explicitly says so in His Word. Later on, much later after this event in Numbers, Israel had taken the land, they'd been living in the land, and, and they'd been turning to idolatry, turning away from God. And, and one of the prophets that God sent to the people to say, repent, turn back to the Lord, was the prophet Ezekiel. And one of the charges that Ezekiel brought, that God brought through Ezekiel against Israel, was that they were deserving of judgment because of the sin against the children. And God says in Ezekiel 16, verse 20, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, God says, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. They were worshiping pagan gods, and part of the sacrifice was to sacrifice children to them. And God says, they were killing the children that were born to God, were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children. God calls them my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. Children belong to God. He says they're my children. And you can't say, well, that only applies to believers. You know, that only applies to, to people who believe in God because these people weren't believing in God. They were following pagan gods, right? And so these children, all children, belong to God. He calls them my children, and you bore them to me. And Ezekiel 23, 37 repeats the same. God has given us children, but they still belong to Him, to care for them, to provide for them, to protect them. So, so if this is true... If all of this is true, and we know that it is, it should not have been such a surprise when God came down as man in the person of Jesus that children were important and precious to him. You remember our study in Mark chapter 10? Jesus was teaching, and people brought children to him, and his disciples, what did his disciples do? Get those kids out of here. We don't have time for that, right? The teacher, he's too important. There's too much going on. Get the kids out of here. And what did Jesus do? You may remember Jesus got mad. We don't think of Jesus angry very often, but the word there is indignant. It means he was, he was angry. He was mad at them. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that we see this word used of Jesus. He was mad that they were shooing the kids away. We see, him, we see him repeatedly compassionate to people, the sick and the diseased. We see him continually patient and forgiving because of all of the inhumane injustice that was happening to others and even to himself. 
We see him zealous for his father's house and overturning tables and taking whips and chasing people out, right? We, we see him in those things, but nowhere else do we see him angry like he was when his disciples were trying to shoo the kids out of the way. Get out of the way. Jesus said in Mark 10, 14, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And then it says he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. They weren't his children physically, but he cared for them. They were children that he was there to love and to care for. And he wasn't angry with strangers. When he got mad, who did he get mad at? It was his own disciples. He said, come on, guys, you don't even know what you're... You know, if you're, you think you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven that way, <laughs> you're sorely mistaken. You need to become more like the kids. Why? Why do we need to become more like children? Because children are precious and special to God. And brother and sister, that's why it's such an honor. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins, you have now become a child of God. And that's a special place to God because 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In Jesus, we are children of God. That's the great love that God has for us to make us his children. It's a blessing of grace that we could never earn. We will never earn that because children are special and precious to God. It only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, we want to talk with you after the service. We want to introduce you to him and explain more about what he did for us to become children. But because children are so precious to God, children need to also be precious to us. Because they're so special to God and, and hold such a high place in his heart, we need to hold them as in a high place in our heart. And in case we're not sure, Jesus took a child and placed him before his disciples in Matthew 18, 5 and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, right? Caring for little ones is tantamount to obeying Jesus, to loving and choosing to serve and love Jesus and receiving him. And then the warning that came after that is striking to us. This, is, this may cause us to sit up a little bit. The warning that Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It's, a, it's an amazingly powerful picture of, of a couple of hundred pounds stone being tied to your neck and then throwing you into the water. Um, you're going to drown, right? And it's a horrifying, terrible thought. But that would be better than causing a little one to sin. And yes, I realize that the, the child there was also representing believers, little ones who believe in Jesus, but he was also speaking of the child that was sitting right there in front of them all. So that's a very, it's a very strong picture. And it, we've seen a couple of very strong pictures about how God feels about children and how we should then feel about children. They're precious. They're, they're gifts from the Lord, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it's two in the morning, <laughs> even when they do things we don't think that they should do. And no, they shouldn't do. They're precious. They're gifts from God. And we may need to change the way that we see them, the way that we think about children. If not now, maybe Tuesday or maybe Thursday night or, like I said, two in the morning. We, we may need to change the way that we see them. Many people today see children as an obstacle to their dreams. 
They see children as a, as a problem that get, that get in the way of their aspirations. And, and this is for, true for both men and women, but especially for women. And the falling birth rate in America is, is an alarming sign and trend, and it's revealing for us. At our current levels, not only is our population not growing in the birth rate, our population is at this point unable to just continue. <laughs> We're not producing enough children even just to replace the people that are being lost through natural causes, death, or even moving away. The only way that we're actually able to grow is by immigration. And this is an alarming trend, that, that we're not even able to replace the people that we have, let alone grow in our population, because we're having, in our, as a culture, so few children. And it shows that as our culture continues the path of rejecting God, the culture is also rejecting what He says is important. And that includes marriage and work, entertainment, and, of course, children. So God says having children is, is precious and it's a gift, but people who reject God reject His Word that reveals that, and instead they see children as an inconvenience or a difficult hurdle, and they need to overcome that by just not having them or getting rid of them or treating them poorly. And so we need to guard our minds against those ideas that are so prevalent in culture and held so highly we may need to change our understanding of what children are or just have our minds refreshed about how precious children are to our Lord. And as we learn or refresh our minds on how precious, we will learn why they should be so precious to us in our lives that we want to live for God's glory and holiness. So the question then is, what, in what ways are children precious to God? How can we tell that they're so special to them? How do we know that they're true? We know that children are precious to God because of four general, simple reasons. There are many more, but we're only going to cover four, and uh, we're not even going to get past the first one this morning, so you'll have to come back for the other three. Uh, but we want to find out, Lord, why are they so precious? How can we tell that they're so precious to God? And the first one that we're going to cover this morning is, number one, children are special to God because He makes them in the womb. He makes them in the womb. From the moment of conception in the womb, children are special and precious to God because He formed them and He gave them life. Many people today reject the Bible as the authority on anything, but particularly children. If they reject the Bible outright, why not, why not this area? But others make strong claims that the Bible is silent on abortion. And you'll hear that a lot that from people, that the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion and they are not correct. That is wrong. Though the word abortion is not present in the Bible, it is not silent on this issue. Any more than the Bible is silent on the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Scriptures, but God is still three in one. The, the word incarnation, the word rapture, so many teachings that, that we hold to are not specifically mentioned as those words in the Scripture. But the Bible's not silent on these things. Babies from the moment of conception, including the entire time that they exist in the womb and out of the womb, are precious to God because He made them. And this has been a very contentious issue. This has been a far-reaching and serious issue with implications that, that reach far beyond what we'll discuss this morning. But as always, what we want to do is dive into the Scriptures to find out what God says about the preciousness of children in the womb. If you would turn back to Roman, uh, sorry, to Genesis chapter four, almost the beginning 
of the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 4, um, we know that the first two human beings were created in a very unique way by God. You can read about it in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, man formed from the dust of the ground, and God breathed life into him. And then the woman was formed by the rib that came from Adam, and, and God formed those two uniquely. From that point on, for there to be more human beings, the man and the woman must come together in the flesh. And God's design is for that to happen in marriage. But mankind has figured out that it can happen without marriage, right? That it does and can happen outside of marriage. But this is, what, this is God's design, and this is how it happens here in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1. We see how it happens. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This word knew refers to intimacy, Again, in God's plan, it's reserved for a husband and a wife, but this, it's the intimacy. As they were intimate, biologically, the sperm met the egg, the baby was formed, and she gave birth to that baby. But notice who received the glory for both of those happening, for the conception and the birth. It's the Lord. Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain came, his conception and his birth came at the help of the Lord. She even named her son Cain which means gotten. He was gotten by the Lord when the Lord did his work of conceiving and then bearing Cain. So even as Adam and Eve knew one another and biologically everything worked the way it was supposed to, the Lord is the one who brought about both the conception and the birth. That's how it happens. The Lord brings about the, the birth of a child and the conception of a child. Today, we've had many scientific breakthroughs that have really answered, they haven't really answered how God does this, but we can see what happens, and, and we can describe what happens as God does His work in this order, uh, in the order of creation that happens, and it's fascinating to study it. Briefly, again, sperm meets egg, but before that happens, neither one of those gametes, as they're called, is a person or a human being. Individually, neither one is. Each only contains half of the genetic material to create or to make a human being. When they do meet, they come together, a fundamental change occurs. It's, it's such, a, such a change that two halves come together into a whole. Now there is a whole being, and the human being comes into existence. Scientifically, that's called a zygote. But as it divides into many cells, it has a complete set of DNA. It has 46 chromosomes required to make a human being, to be a human being. All the DNA is there. And not only is it there, this is, this is fascinating, this DNA is distinct both from father and from mother. The DNA is different because this child has now been formed by the two halves coming together to make a whole. This zygote, scientifically called, meets all of the definitions of life, scientifically. It is new life. It grows by reproduction of cells. Uh, he or she metabolizes nutrients, um, can respond to stimuli. This is amazing. In reality, if everything goes well, the zygote, as they call it, becomes a fetus, again, as scientifically called. It takes eight weeks for that to happen, and then it's a, it, the baby is a fetus from that point on until he or she is born. But whether you call it a zygote or a fetus, we call them human beings. You say, well, that's if all goes well. You know, that's if everything works the way it's supposed to. The same thing can be said for afterbirth, right? After a baby is born, if all goes well, the baby becomes a toddler. 
The toddler becomes a child, the child a teenager, and really, if all goes well, the teenager becomes an adult, right? <laughs> Everything has to really come together. But, but this is what's so amazing about it. This is a human life. You can, you can see it, you can test it, you can watch it, you can see everything happening, and it's God that brings about all of this life. We can describe it, and we can watch it, and we can repeat it, and we can do all these things, but how does it happen? God does it. That's the answer. That's the real answer. It's God that brings about life, that human being, and it begins in the womb. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 11.5, as you do not know the way of the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Just like we don't understand. Now, there are differences in translations. Some of the translations say you don't understand the wind and how it blows, and you don't understand the bone, how the bones form in the womb. Um, either way, whether the tra whichever translation is correct, the point is the same. How does it happen? We don't know. We just know that God does because God is the one who makes everything. Now, because children are precious to God and, and that begins at the point of conception where the two halves become a whole, those children need to be precious to us. We've already seen how important children are to God. They belong to Him. They're gifts from Him. He protects them. He provides for them. But the same care is our responsibility. And we're going to look at that more closely during their lives outside the womb in another point, again, Lord willing, next week. But staying here in the womb, that means that we need to be protecting and caring for human beings in the womb. Not only should we not be attacking them, not be killing them, called abortion or more patronizingly called elective termination of pregnancy, not only should we not be murdering them, we should be working to protect them and care for them, and we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. The temptation was... Um, you know, to lead us through some of the graphic and revolting details of how abortions are performed. I'll spare you that this morning. They're easily accessed online. Uh, many sources will downplay it. They will use sterile language. Other sites will give it to you quite plainly, even grotesquely. But let's be clear, the reason it's so grotesque is because it is grotesque. The, the pictures and, and the descriptions and the videos are grotesque because this is a, it's a grotesque process of murdering a child in the place that they were supposed to be the safest. In every case, it is the murder of a human being. Biblically, we've seen that it's the work of God that brings about that life. Scientifically, we've talked about just briefly the distinct life of the baby in the womb. Abortion takes away that life from a human being made by God in the womb. Now, for many of us, it may be surprising to, to learn this, for those who are supportive of abortion, and by the way, people that are supportive of abortion generally call themselves pro-choice, but you're either allowing and encouraging abortion or you're not. You're either actively protecting them or you're not. So uh, whether you say pro-choice or not, that, it's a nicer way of stating the position, but let's be clear what it means. But many may be surprised to learn that for those who have been supportive of abortion, it has become more common knowledge and accepted that abortion is the taking away of a human life. You know, that used to be a big sticking point for people. Well, it's the taking away of a life. No, no, it's not. Well, yes, it is. It's pretty much scientifically accurate to say that that is a human life that's dependent on another, another human being, but it's a human life. But many who are pro-abortion today concede that. They say, okay, it's a human life. 
So what? Mary Elizabeth Williams is a writer for the New York Times, has been a writer for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and many other media outlets, including Salon.com, which is a site that purports to cover, among other subjects, politics, national news, and culture. They say on their site that they are, quote, committed to bringing a variety of, so of voices to the discussion to make the conversation smarter, end quote. I, I didn't find any dissenting voices to much uh, on this site. But Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote an article a few years ago on this site, Salon.com, and it was entitled plainly, so what if abortion ends a life? And just underneath the title is a sort of tagline to draw you in, quote, I believe that life starts at conception and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice, end quote. Now, I, I don't necessarily recommend reading the article because of the vulgarity in it, but she plainly states that just because an unborn baby is alive doesn't mean that the baby should have the same rights as the living mother. She says, quote, yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life is, and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always, end quote. She ends her article with a similar thought, quote, I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life a life worth sacrificing, end quote. So the issue for the more honest among us today, though tragically so, is not whether the unborn baby is alive, but whether that human life is a life worth saving or a life worth sacrificing. A growing number of people who acknowledge the life of the baby still hold the position of supporting abortion because the reason for them is that the life of the baby is not worthy of consideration. Not worthy of protection, not, not worthy of care. Now, how is that case made? How, how can you make that kind of argument? The argument is that the baby is not a person in the legal definition, the legal sense of the word person. Even though the baby is alive, even though the baby is a baby, because there's just no getting around it with the DNA and the movement and the heartbeat, the ultrasounds, even though the baby is alive, it doesn't count as a person. The problem is that who gets to decide what a person is? Who decides who a person is or what makes a person and what makes them worthy of protection or consideration or care? Is it whether a human being can support himself or herself in basic life functions? Is, is that what determines a human being? Well, you, you could see how that could expand far outside the womb to many other people, right? Um, older people that are that are, uh, their bodies are starting to fail. Well, they're not worth it, just let them go. That, that's, that argument can be expanded outward. Think about King David in Israel. You remember King David in his older years, First Kings tells us he was unable to keep himself warm. J just a, a daily life activity of his body working to keep him warm, what did they do? They didn't have heaters, and they couldn't get enough blankets on him. So they brought in a young woman to lie with him so that her body heat would keep him warm. Now, the Bible is clear that there was, it was not for the purpose of intimacy, and they never engaged in anything improper. But just because David was old and unable to keep himself warm, they didn't say, well, you're going to die. You got your son coming after you anyway, so you might as well just go, and, and we'll just replace you. No, they said, you're worthy of care and compassion and help because you're alive. 
because you are a living human being. And they brought someone in to help him to continue. Think about how compassionate Jesus was on all the people who were sick or diseased or helpless. They couldn't do anything for themselves and, and they just were either going to live a miserable life or not live much longer. And consider how much time he spent with them and how, how he not just went around them, he touched them. And he became so close to people that other people wouldn't even go near. He was with children and, and cared for children who the culture downplayed and said, get away, they're not important. Those were the least of the people and Jesus was compassionate and paid special attention to them. Why did he do that? Why care about people who can't help themselves, whether they're too old or they're too young? I mean, why do we care about them? A, in your notes, because they are made in God's image. Because they're made in God's image. Genesis 127 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. All human beings carry the image of God. If it's a living person in there, then that living person is made in the image of God. And inherently within them, simply because we are human beings, we have the image of God and we're therefore worthy of dignity and care. It doesn't matter what a person can or cannot do, human beings are worthy of consideration and protection and help. In fact, that's a common reason given by many for supporting abortion. Maybe the child is going to be challenged or handicapped in some way, maybe deaf or blind or some other condition. It's going to be just a hard life for the, for the children. But not only are those people who live with those conditions grateful that nobody has killed them, either in the womb or since then, because of what they can't do, not only is that true, but it's true that God is the one who created them that way in the womb. Say, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Where do you get that? Exodus 4.11, God speaking to Moses says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? To kill an unborn baby because of a condition that would allow him or her to live presumes to play God over that person. See, we, we as human beings are separate and distinct from all of the rest of creation, including animals. And that's why in Genesis 9, God says, if, if a person is killed by another person or by another animal, I'm going to take that life. He says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. That's the reason that we have any dignity as human beings. That includes the unborn. And it doesn't mean that animals should be mistreated and abused or anything. There is punishment for cruelty to animals. But human beings have an even more special place, including the unborn. They're specifically worthy of even more dignity and respect, regardless of what they can or cannot do. B, in our notes, why else would, would we care so much? They are worthy of care. B, they are worthy of care. Not because of what they have or haven't done or do or don't do. One of the most loathsome practices of mankind during wartime is to target women and children. And there are international agreements that try to prevent that from happening um, unless they begin to engage in war. And That's another topic for another time um, as America continues down that path. But even more shocking is the horrendous act of attacking pregnant women and ripping them open to kill the unborn baby. 
and that's happened throughout history. In fact, in Amos 1.13, God specifically spells out judgment on the Ammonites for doing that, for killing unborn babies, innocent children in their mother's wombs. God says, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. Now, their motivation for doing that was enlarging their border. You know, we need to make life better for ourselves. We need to get more land. We need to remove the obstacles for our success and our prosperity. And they believed that that was best done by killing other people, including unborn babies. And God said, I'm going to bring judgment for that. Just killing the baby so that you can get what you want. So simply because a baby would prevent you from getting what you want is no reason for killing him or her. Only because the child may not be able to see or hear or, or because the child may have Down syndrome or some other kind of condition where, it would, where the baby would still be able to live but it would be difficult, it's not a reason for killing the child. All human beings are made in the image of God. They are worthy of consideration and protection and care. There are six things the Lord hates, even seven that are an abomination to Him in Proverbs 6. Number three on that list is hands that shed innocent blood. And no one can be more innocent than an unborn baby. Consistently throughout Scripture, when a woman is pregnant, the phrase is that she has been found with child, right? Not with tissue, not with extra cells, with child. In, in Luke 1, you remember when Mary came to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. God had told Zechariah, his father, in verse 15, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. The Holy Spirit doesn't fill tissues or cells, but persons. In verse 41 of Luke 1, as Elizabeth and Mary greet one another, they come together. The Bible says the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. The Bible calls this a baby. <laughs> then Elizabeth herself says being filled with the Holy Spirit says the baby leaped in her womb for joy. <laughs> joy is reserved for persons, not tissues. Not living beings who are unworthy of consideration, not hindrances on personal goals. Brothers and sisters, we have not yet even begun to view every scripture that we could consider on this. There, there are so many that would point to the preciousness of children and, and how God has created them and cares for them in the womb. But I want to close this portion of our study with Psalm 139. Um, it's, a, it's a very familiar psalm to us, Psalm 139. Uh, we'll spend a few minutes on application after this, but, but I just want us to see this in Psalm 139, David's words, speaking directly to God, praising Him, lifting Him up for making Him the way He is. And the, Psalm 139 isn't in your notes. It, it probably should have been. <laughs> you can write it down and, and refer to it later. But verse 13, David speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. And that word formed, it's the same word that was used of Cain. The same word, created, gotten, worked by God. He, God worked to form David's inward parts the same way that he worked to, to produce and to, to bring about Cain. It's God's word to, and his work to make him. 
David says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. We're knitted, we're we're woven piece by piece. (laughs) All of it brought together and joined together in just mind-blowing ways. Every cell that makes up skin and flesh and blood and bones, soft tissue, hard tissues, (laughs) uh, you know, cartilage and bone and fingernails and and muscles and, and fat and skin and hair and all of it. All of it's just, it's all made up in the womb and it all comes together. Every piece and every part, the tendons, the ligaments so that we can move, it all happened in the womb. It all came together in the womb as God knitted it all together. He did all the work there. You know, we have to grow when we come out, but, but he's done it all already before we're even born. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Fearfully is, is astounding. It's awe-inspiring how God creates life. It should cause us to fear such a powerful and amazing God. Wonderfully, it's, it's wonder of wonders. It's extraordinary. Even though it happens every day, right? Multiple times a day it happens. We still cannot fathom or understand how God does this. His works are wonderful, and our soul knows it very well. We don't understand everything that happens, but our soul understands that this is amazing. We, we call these miracles of children, right? The miracle of birth. We see his works there in the womb and we're mystified by them. We see them and all we can do is praise him because we can't even fully grasp all of it. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The frame there is a skeleton. It's made up of bones. How did you do that? The bones that were formed inside of David's body, inside his mother's body. How did, God, how did you do that? I don't understand. None of it was hidden from you. You were there. You were working. You were forming. You were crafting. The depths of the earth refers to the womb, the hidden places in secret (laughs) that nobody else can go into. Intricately woven goes even further than knitted. It it adds the complexity and, and the color and all of the different parts weaved together. I mean, not only is every part individually amazing, but you put it all together and the body works. And the mind works, and it's, it's bewildering. How does this happen, God? Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is the one who does all of this. He knows our beginning and our end. He has everything planned for our life, and all of us are so precious to him as his children from our conception that begins in the womb that he cares for us, and he's written out our days. It's not tissue in the womb to God. It's a human life. Okay, so how can we be a part of protecting them then? What is our application this week since we've only covered one point of how children are precious to God? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, first in our application, if you have participated in not caring for children in the womb, the blanks there are repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Not caring for children can take many forms. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 6, because we, we want all of us to see this. We need to see this in 1 Corinthians 6. Not caring for children can take many forms, including abortion. If you have had an abortion, as we've seen, that was a, a human life made in God's image, but you have not committed the unpardonable sin. You can be forgiven for that by God, by Jesus himself. 
if you've played a part in performing abortions or assisting in performing, or you've worked to protect women killing the unborn, you've been working against God's work to create children, but you've not committed the unpardonable sin. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Research says that about 83% of abortions are committed because of sexual immorality. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news, that we are sinful beings, that all of us fall into some of that. At some point there, all of us have fallen into one of those labels. And he says, in fact, and such were some of you. There's none of these sins that's greater than the other. All of these sins condemn us before God. And such were some of us. But, verse 11 here, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess to Him our sins. We turn away from them. We believe in Him as God's price to pay for the punishment of our sins. He justifies us declares us righteous, not just not guilty. And he doesn't take away what you did, but he takes away the sin for it. Your guilt can be removed by God himself. Listen, brothers and sisters, all of us who are here as citizens in this country have played a part in this, even if we were unwitting in doing that. On April 16th of this year, the Biden administration rescinded policies that had taken steps toward protecting the unborn. The National Institutes of Health no longer maintains a human fetal tissue research ethics advisory board. The board was supposed to advise on the ethics of using tissue from elective abortions. They were supposed to recommend whether different research activities were to be funded. In, in the year 2020, they rejected 13 of 14 proposals. So they were providing at least some measure of help to protect. That board was disbanded. It no longer exists. Also in April, an, another important ban was overturned. In 2019, purchasing new fetal tissue from elective abortions was banned, and research was funded to identify alternatives to using fetal tissue in research. That has all been overturned and reversed. Researchers can now again purchase fetal tissue from abortions to use for research. That's our government. That's the government that represents each citizen here. And they've done more than that. More than just our representatives, our money has funded research on babies who were aborted. An article came out this week by reporter Scott Barkley. It came out in some minor media outlets, because most of the major media outlets have ignored the story, but it showed that some of our tax money has gone to the National Institutes of Health, part of the Department of Health and Human Services, in research that seeks fetal parts, tissues, and organs for medical experimentation. It was a project meant to reduce the amount of time aborted fetal organs go without blood flow before they can begin experimenting on them. The goal of the specific project that came out in this week was, quote, to generate an inventory of genitourinary tissue throughout normal human development, end quote. 
Our tax money has already been sent to this project, and that's just one example of an article that came out this week. By the way, those babies that are targeted exist between six weeks and 42 weeks in the womb. We need to acknowledge that this is happening in our country, even by our government, and using our money. What can we do about this? The first thing we need to do in our notes is to pray. We need to pray for those in government, that the Lord would get a hold of their heart and mind and save them. We need to pray for the women who are faced with the difficult circumstances that they're faced with that would, that would make them want to consider doing this. Circumstances can be incredibly difficult. Things can be so hard for these women who are facing these things. As hard as they may seem to be, killing the baby will make nothing better. We need to pray for these ladies. We need to pray for the doctors and the support staff to see what they're doing and what's happening to the babies and that they would repent as well. Pray for all of us. Pray for our nation. Pray for the world. And the next thing we can do here in our country, we're blessed with the ability to vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for. We're not going to begin releasing a list of people that you should and should not vote for. But if, if I am voting for someone who supports this, I'm helping to put them into office. And I'm helping to support this from happening. Not voting helps to, helps to overwhelm the votes of those who vote against it. You, you not just vote, but we can write to representatives. We can express our opinions and our voices. This government was set up uh, anticipating and expecting and needing the voice of the people. For as long as we're able, we can do that. The next in our notes, in our application, support Pregnancy Center. Pregnancy centers where these ladies go who are facing those troubles. They, they don't know where else to turn. They head into these pregnancy centers, and these pregnancy centers can help them to find out other things that they can do besides taking the life of the baby. And we can give money, we can give time, and, and there are different ways to support them. Um, consider adoption. That blank is adoption. Consider adoption. Rather than killing a baby in a womb, those children can be adopted, they can be loved. We've had families in our church family here that have adopted children. They've said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. Finally, we need to minister to all involved. Our calling, brothers and sisters, is to love with the love that we've been shown, the love that we've been given. We need to love everybody involved in this. We need to love one another. We need to love the people in the world. We don't need to be going out and trying to bash people over the heads. We're not going out there and, and trying to cause trouble. We're trying to cause the truth of the Lord to be shared in love. This is a difficult topic. It's, it's hard to talk like this about this, but brothers and sisters, it's important that we see how precious children are to God. Jesus cared for children. And we're going to see that in the next few points next week, Lord willing. But thank you for your patience and thank you for 
listening as we've gone through the Word. Hopefully the Word of God stands out. The Word of God is the most important. The Word of God is inspired. Anything else that we might say doesn't necessarily come from Him. We, we can be sure that every Word of God is true and it will last forever and we're blessed by it. Father, thank You for Your Word. We praise You, God, that You have given us life. Father, we saw in First Peter that the reason that husbands are to care for their wives and honor their wives is because of the grace of life. Thank you, Lord, for the men and the women in this room. Thank you for the life that you've given each of us, the the children in this room. God, we praise you. We thank you in humility that you have made us. You've made us the way that we are. Father, we pray for our government leaders. We pray, Lord, that you would use us and use others who are your people to share your truth and love with people in government. God, we pray that you would change their minds and their hearts. Lord, until their minds and their hearts are new and different, God, that the policies are not going to be changed. But Lord, we pray for that. We pray that the policies would be changed. We pray that children would be safe in the womb. God, they're precious to you. They need to be precious to us. I pray that you would help us to to love them and and treat them as special and precious. We pray for those ladies who are faced with such difficult circumstances, with such hard times, Lord. We pray that you would bless them, that you would love them, that you'd bring people around them to encourage them and care for them. And Lord, people that would adopt the child if she cannot care for for the baby. Lord, somehow there is a way, you will provide a way for a child to be cared for and loved. We pray for those involved, Lord, that they would see as they see the ultrasounds, as they hear the heartbeat, as as they know what's happening, God, that they would repent, that they would be faced with the truth, Father, and that they would believe in Christ Jesus and turn away from that, turn away from all of their sins, God. Again, this is not the unpardonable sin, Lord. You can forgive. You forgave Paul, who was a murderer, You can forgive all of us from all of our sins when we turn to you. Lord, I pray that you would work in us. Lord, give us a greater love for the people around us to share your truth and to share comfort and hope that we have in Jesus Christ and him alone because of your grace. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.